Every day we pass by people who have stories that need to be heard because we need to be shaped by them. This is one of those stories. Justin Harvey. Bro, I am so excited to to be talking to you today. And, well, thanks. Yeah, and uh, you've inspired me on a couple of different occasions. Uh, one was when we were at church and you were talking about how amazed you were, how God can bring reconciliation to parts of your life that you didn't believe could be reconciled. That's one thing. And the next thing was um, we were sitting at the Zenberger and you started to talk about the different people uh, that you've been helping in Mesa predominantly, I think. Yeah, mostly Mesa, East Valley. Yep. And so, I don't know, I just, I, I just listened to that and I thought, you know, Justin has a story. He has something to say. God has done something in his life that I think we kind of need to put a megaphone up to and let other people hear. So what I want to know is you work with the poor and the vulnerable among other things. But I want to know what is it about the poor and the vulnerable that has attracted you to helping them? And what are some of the things that you do for them? Well, uh, I grew up poor, um, fatherless, um, you know, single mother. So I know all about how it is, you know, to be poor um, and to be in that space where you're just not sure, you know, what's going to happen next. And I mean, I didn't always care. Um, You know, I was living in fast forward for most of my life, focused on getting out of being poor. And I, I did that fairly young. Um, and I, I spent the majority of my adult life getting money and focusing on not being poor. Um, but now, uh, things are different and I'm being called, you know, I'm, um, seeking God in my life and, and calling for him to guide my steps. And he's called me to use my skills and experience and what I've been through to help people. So it's just sort of happened. You said you grew up poor and you grew up fatherless. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who haven't grown up poor and who had their dad. So paint the picture for me of what does it even mean? What did that look like? What did that feel like to grow up poor? Describe that to me. Well, I guess the first thing that pops out is like feeling less than the rest, you know, like uh, during holidays or <clears throat> first days of school. You know, anytime there's an instance in your life when you need money as a child, and it happens all the time, <clears throat> you know, whether you can do Boy Scouts or do sports or you know, you just can't do those things. And if you can do those things, it's a really big deal. Um, and in my case, I got to do some things, you know, I got to do baseball here and there, you know, but it was off the good grace of others, a mom's boyfriend or, or something. Um, and so that does something to you, you know, I guess it puts like a chip on your shoulder or something. I had a, sh- a chip on my shoulder for sure. You probably couldn't see it, but it was in there and... As soon as I could, I left home at 
I wasn't even 15 yet. And went out and started hustling, getting money and living on my own. And I was in a rush to get there. You know, but it's, it's hard. It's hard because you do. You walk around feeling less. It's easy to get stuck in that place. But, you know, I was determined not to be stuck there. Do you feel like the fact that you were raised that way allows you to look at the poor and the homeless now with different eyes than a lot of people look at them with? Certainly. Yeah, because I can relate. Um, you know, and <clears throat> I can communicate with them as well. You know, I'm still, I'm, I'm still poor, you know, I'm, I'm working, I'm okay, you know, but, but I'm not so far past that place where I don't know what it's like. Um, and little things make a big difference when you're that down. So when you're driving through Mesa or Chandler or wherever it may be, and you drive past the poor, and maybe it's somebody who looks obvious. I mean, it's they're pushing a cart. They may have a psychological problem or whatever. Or people who are addicted, they're sitting there maybe drinking the beer on the corner. Um, what do you think that most people misunderstand about them? And, and, and they would even ask it this way. Why are those people seemingly invisible to us often? I think it seems like it's too much. Like you, you feel the problem is is too much that you couldn't, you know you can't. I mean, a logical person would see someone in that state and, and probably realize they just couldn't handle it. They couldn't stop, sit with that person and take them on because they don't know what to do. They don't know what their problem is. They don't know if they're dangerous. Um. And they have a lot to lose if they get hurt or if this person comes to their house and, you know, attacks their children or whatever. Um, so it's not that they are invisible, but they just, most people don't think they can really do anything. It's just, uh, it's they don't feel like it's their role to do it or that they can, I think. I mean, that's an assumption, but I don't know. So what are the type of things that you've done for the the working poor, the poor around us? What are some what are some of the ways that you've reached out? Well, I stop and lean in right away. Um and I talk to them. I find out what's going on. A lot of times I can't do much, you know, but I will provide them with something to drink and someone to listen to them. If they need a ride somewhere, I'll give them a ride. Um food. I feed people. I'll take them to eat. Um, you know, if it's, if I'm able, I'll, you know, get them off the street for a night so they can shower. Um, I've done a lot to prepare myself and, and, uh, set myself up with ways where I can help these people more because that's, there's so many limitations, you know, but I, I have established a small behavioral health company in town, you know, on my own, just so that I could connect with all the sober houses and food banks and places in town that are also helping people. So I advocate for people that just can't or won't to get them into, you know, sober house or transitional living. 
I help people with um, the body, you know, my my people, the you know, our people. Um, you know, I'll put out need requests for people if they need to get in deposit or something to get into a place they have a job, but there's no way they could come up with the deposit money, but they can pay rent, things like that. On a small scale, I do. But it's just me. I can't do much. But that's some of the stuff that I do. Well, you say it's uh, not much, but I think in their lives it's a whole lot. Um, that's one of the things that attracts me to you, Justin. It really does, is your your compassion for people. <clears throat> uh, do you have a specific person or a specific story that comes to mind that kind of illustrates your relationship you've had with some people that uh, are neglected in society? Yeah. Um, early on, uh, I was driving through Mesa. It's like, university and country club or something and um there was a bus stop there and there was a woman uh, an older woman and i i had seen her three or four times in a row on the same bus stop and um i was curious about it but at that point i i i didn't have much to to offer i wasn't stopping but a guy who worked for me called me and said that there was a woman on the corner at this bus stop. <clears throat> and, um, you know, she had been there for a while and she needed help. And we were very busy with all these other things. And, you know, um, I don't know, something told me that I should just go anyways that after work. So I went by and she was there and she was surrounded by all these, these guys you know, and they were, you know, all street, homeless guys, thugs, whatever. And um, it seemed like a setup. Like from my past experience, it felt like a setup. And um, when I was walking up, I saw there was a knife, like a steak knife, stuck in the ground behind the bus stop, like by a bush. It was strange. It, it stood out to me, but I saw it, and it, you know, I just was like, nah, you know, I picked it up and I went far and I put it in the trash. And I walked back and I just walked up to her, you know. And I, I I lead with my cross always, you know. And I know people think that's cliche. You mean your, your or necklace or your ring? You mean? Yeah, all of it. And um, you know, I walked up and and this girl, she didn't know I was coming, and she said. Are you my guardian angel? She said, you are. And this guy looked at me. I was scared, honestly. I thought I was going to have to fight him. <clears throat> he said, oh, you're with the church. And I was like, yeah, I am. And he just... Oh, and you're going to take care of her? I was like, yeah. And so <clears throat> I just grabbed her and I put her in my car. And I took her into my office and I, I told my girls, I said, let's sort her out, you know. And, 
I didn't do it. God just like lined everything up for this girl. She, she's like, I think she's buying a house now. I mean, she went right into a home that night. Well, I put her in a hotel, but in a, in a home the next day, and then they <clears throat> transitional house. I mean, they just took care of her. But it was when that dude looked at me and he stood back that I realized I was doing the right thing. And so I've just been building on that. Oh, that's beautiful, bro. If, um, if you could spend the rest of your life assisting the poor and vulnerable, the addicted, and money wasn't an option, you had it totally taken care of, what's your biggest dream of what you would like to do? I want to build a tower in Mesa where people can get it all in one place. The service, the housing, the training, the worship, um, work support, everything in one place in the worst part of our East Valley and, and help the people come together and help each other and, um, and find the real savior and know where it is. They could see it. From anywhere in the valley, they can just look up and see the tower and they can walk there and get what they need. It's a beautiful thought, bro. I hope that dream comes true. I know that we all have things that motivate us and you touched on just a little bit on your story, but I really would like to know your personal story. And to the extent that you're comfortable to share it. And um, my question to you would be, what is it that we need to know about Justin Harvey to really know his story? Well, I came from the mud. And I'm from... Nothing. My family had nothing except trauma. All the guys before me were villains and they're dead. I was left with the role of a patriarch at 13 and I didn't want it. Uh, I say 13 because my, the last man standing died, my uncle, at 13. And I was left with just this a whole family of traumatized women to take care of. And they all were very vindictive and wild type women, um, manipulative. And they liked to sick me on people. Um, you know, and so I just started out wrong. I started out <clears throat> in the dark. There was no God in my life. Uh, if there was any God, it was a distant, cruel God that didn't like my family. My mom loved me very, very much. I was never abused. <clears throat> I was protected. My mother told me I could do anything. She never really knew my father. I, I don't know him. I've never known him. Um, but the one thing my mom did right is she loved me. 
And I think she might have done it lying because she didn't even know what love is. She didn't get it. I think she literally did the opposite of what she got to produce me. But she raised me up to be a gentleman, gangster, a villain who would protect her from the evil world. And I did that my whole life. You say villain. Give me some examples of villainous behavior. If someone wouldn't do what I wanted or if they offended somebody in my family, then I would just hurt them. You know, I would hurt them any way I could. It was very rarely by my my own hands. But I knew a lot of people. You know, I could manipulate things. I could scare people. You know, I could use leverage to take things away um, and get them to do what I want or stay away. I often made people move out of state because I don't want to look at them. You know, I forced people to do things I wanted them to do or not do things out of fear of what I might do. Um, and I got really good at that. Later in life, I've always been a tech person. And one of my, I've always been a hustler. Um, somehow I, I ended up in uh, investigations, in private investigations and private investigation technology. And I ended up working with law enforcement for many years. And I, I really loved that power um, to be able to track anybody and know anything and have access to all those things. And I just was a manipulator all the way around. Did, um, did drugs or alcohol come into your life much? Yeah, I'd say it was a major contributor, alcohol. Um, I started drinking late, later than most of my friends, um, about 22, I guess. Um, and it didn't take me long to become an alcoholic. Um, I was all about the whiskey, me and the boys, and just sort of fit. You know, always drinking, wiling out, fights, brawls, you know. But it wasn't until I was about 30, about 10 years ago, when I got really serious with alcohol. Um, you know, life had become much harder, and I was in several large business ventures and a lot of high-stress situations. Um, so I drank all day. Um towards the end in the morning. And yeah, the decisions just got worse and worse. So during that time, what was your lowest moment? Is there a particular particular image, particular story that comes and emerges from that moment? Man. <laughs> um, yeah. I'd say the the most pathetic point of my alcoholism was I remember I was in Denver visiting my son and his mom and it was about 3.30 in the morning when I usually would get woken up by the need to drink and it was about 4 a.m. and I was sitting awake in the dark with this little cheap bottle of whiskey drinking it watching my son and, and my ex sleep 
And she woke up, you know, and she's like, you know, what are you doing? And I'm just like, oh, you know, nothing. Just go back to bed. You know? But I just remember thinking how pathetic it was that I wasn't laying with them. That I couldn't be. I was hurting so bad, you know, I mean, that's, I had to get up. So your life is in a trajectory where you grew up, you didn't have a father that you knew, that your mother did what she could. You said she loved you, but there was not a lot that she gave you. You were the last of the patriarchs of your family. And you move through life, which you're telling us, and you've had some successes, some failures. Alcohol got a hold of you for a little bit. Any drug use, by the way, with that? Not really. I mean, younger years, Mexico days, pharmaceuticals, a little here and there, but no, no addictions. So what was the point? Give us the circumstances around when God illuminated your heart to your sin and to his love. Three years ago, I was alone, sick, dying in Mexico, dying from liver failure. And one day I was walking in the slums by a friend's house and, and I saw this this man. I was wasted, you know, but I was just walking with a bottle in hand up a train track and there was this there was this guy, an American, and he was working on it's just randomly working on someone's house, you know, and I just, I remember asking, like, what are you doing? You know, and he looked over at me and he sees the bottle and he's like, you know, he's like, oh, I was once like you. He said, look, look at my truck. He's like, look, Jesus did this for me. I had nothing. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I just kept walking. And I kept drinking, you know, and I, I was getting more and more sick. And I started thinking from that, I started thinking maybe, maybe I was really, maybe I was really going to die. Maybe I wasn't going to recover this time. And um, slowly I just started thinking about all the people my people, my kids, my mom, my sister, my nephews, everyone. It's like I hadn't thought about him in years. And um, I got really sick. And um, a friend of mine from the States called and convinced me to, to come back. But I was on the run from the law, I was dying. I ended up coming back and getting arrested at the border and a long, horrible experience after that. But I was in the States for six months on probation, walking in the summer, about six, seven miles a day to maintain compliance, to not go to prison for a long, long time. And one day, I I was sick of it. I, I missed the bus again, and I was right out. 
I was right up front of up here. And I decided I was going to split. It's just not worth it. You know, I was done. And then I started thinking about the people and I just looked over and I, I saw the cross. I saw redemption. And uh, I said, wow. I've tried everything else. You know, maybe, maybe he can help me. I don't know. You know maybe that's something there. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't come. I went online and I found that you had a launch point, like a class to get into the church or whatever. And I'm all sarcastic at this point still, you know, but I thought for sure you guys would see me and kick me out, hear my story. And you're in the wrong spot, guy. And, um, you know, I told Brian, one of the pastors here, my story and I just squandered everything and I was away and he said oh yeah he said uh, Jesus told your story go read Luke 15 and I was just like okay I went back and my my sister handed me uh, some a pink bible someone had given her and when I opened it up and I read those words when he came to himself. It just, he came into my heart and changed me forever. Everything, everything changed. It's the first time in my life I ever felt like I had a father. And he's been with me ever since. I realized I always had a father. You said something earlier about how the dark places from the past and the broken places and the pain and how nothing's wasted. And it's, it's because now I see all of those things were leading up until this moment where I feel this way for him. And I get to love all these people. I get to be the father I didn't have. I get to be the uncle I didn't have. But only because of Christ. I'm a beast without him. How has it impacted your relationships? When I came back to this country three years ago, I had negative people who cared about me. Um... My mother hated me. Everyone was terrified of me. Nobody. And today, <laughs> my mom isn't that happy with me right now, but she still <laughs> loves me. I see her all the time. I take care of her. I mean, I help her pay her rent. I make life easier on her. Um, I see my son. My, I actually have a relationship with my ex that's healthy, and she lets me see my son. And he comes here. He, he's part of my church. I'm rebuilding relationships with my daughters. My sister and I are closer than I ever thought was possible. I see my nephews. I'm actually being a healthy role model for them, and they don't even like it. I'm too Christian, you know. I'm, you know, I'm the only person, even remotely, 
I mean, I'm the only believer that I, in my network, but it's, it's night and day. I mean, I, I have, I have new friends. I have a dozen new friends that I, th- I love. I, I literally love. I would die for. And, um, yeah, it's only through Christ. It's not me. <laughs> I mean, it's, I guess it's me, but it's, it's Christ in me, but it's, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> with what you know now, with the relationship that you have with your Heavenly Father now, I think you said you were 14. Was it 13 or 14 when you were your uncle died? 13. If you could go back and tell your 13-year-old self something about what you know now, what would it be? It's going to be okay. All the instructions are right here. I never knew that we had actually instructions to go off of, you know, that there was a way. But there is. You have two tattoos on your arms. Could you uh, describe them to us and tell us what they're about? Yeah. Well, I'll start with the not-so-bad one. Uh, This is Faith in Chaos. You know, a long time ago, I was trying to figure things out, and I guess I was coming up with my own religion in a way, you know, that things were a cycle, inevitably going from simplicity to total chaos, and that it was uncontrollable by us. So it was faith in chaos being the place we all end up, which I guess is hell. Uh, It was also supposed to be my children's names. Chaos was my son that I didn't get. And Faith is my 17-year-old daughter. Um, and this I got actually when I first got back to the United States. And it says, no fucks given. Because when I, you know, when I, when I got back, it was all about all of my deficiencies and inadequacies and mistakes. I just didn't want to hear about it. It hurt. The shame was too much. So I just needed to remind myself that I didn't care. <laughs> I try to convince myself, I guess, more like that I didn't care. If you were to get a new tattoo right now and it was saying something, what would it say? <laughs> Christ is king. Not me. Justin, what does Jesus mean to you? Love. Home. Life. Everything. You say, you know, the Bible is, you never had the Bible. You didn't have instructions for life. Is there a certain story out of the Bible you've gravitated towards that you just have really uh, clung to over the years? 
I mean, you know, Luke fifteen seventeen is by far, you know, the prodigal son is my life verse. It's definitely the story. Just understanding the magnitude of, of the father's love and God's grace. And for somebody like me, who's so stained and scarred from my choices in life, I don't deserve this love. I don't deserve to be around you people. Any of it. I don't deserve any of this. But he gives it to me. He's given it to me anyways. He's giving me this. His grace. And that story when I read it, just how arrogant he was and just prideful and went out and squandered everything. It speaks to me. I also like the story of how, you know, Peter walking around with his sword, you know. Yeah, and the rise, repent, be baptized, you know. I love the stories of Jesus walking around with his disciples in the beginning. Just how real he was. If Jesus was walking around the East Valley right now, where do you think he would be walking around? Where I'm at. <laughs> That's what I love about you, Justin. That's a great answer, brother. Um, when you meet your Heavenly Father, and he says... Well done, good and faithful servant. What else would you like to hear him say to you? That'll be plenty. Well, Justin, I, um, I just want you to know that it's beautiful what God's done in and is doing in your heart. And uh, for almost five years, I worked at the Nashville Rescue Mission in Nashville, Tennessee, and was able to see a ton of guys walk in and walk out of there. But every now and then, somebody would come through and you'd hear their story, and you would know that God had gotten a hold of their heart differently. I say differently. The way they lived their life after that was different. It was marked and I think you're one of those guys. And I love seeing you serve people. I love your testimony. I love that you're a work in progress. That I am. We all are, right? And, uh, you know, it's equal footing at the cross. And we're all struggling with something. And none of us deserve it. No one at this church or any church deserves it. That's the beautiful thing about grace. And thank you for taking the time to share just a little bit of your redemption story. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Thanks for having me.